Hey everybody, welcome to 24 Shades of Blue. This is Axel Vilma with Superintendent Specialized Criminal Investigations, the badass herself, Pauline Gray. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Amazing. Thank you for having me. Yes, I called you badass for one reason. That's whatever. <laughs> Internally, everybody's telling me, you know, she's the one, she's risen through the ranks. You've been in the industry over 30 years. Um, you've, you've seen it all. And you're also, the fact is, you know, you're in a male dominated industry. You've risen up to the number one spot. How does it feel to, to be where you are after everything, you know, that you've been through and that you've worked so hard to get to? Um, I didn't actually know what I was working towards. Um, because I can tell you when I first started, um, we always say what you can't, what you see, you can be. Uh, but when I started in 1988, um, although there were some women in senior ranks, there wasn't a lot. So it never even dawned on me that this was possible. Um, and then it gets to the point where you're just working. You're just working and slowly but surely you end up in the best job in the whole certain city, which is what I have. <laughs> so and it really was sort of a natural progression. And I work for a, I work for an organization that has allowed me the lateral to do crazy things Um you know, and just and just work my way, literally work my way to where I am now. There was nothing sort of uh, special about it except for the fact that it was just work and work that I love. So it was it wasn't easy, but it was a lot of fun. Do you think you had to work harder than most people? Um, I think probably in the beginning, in the beginning, uh, I probably did. But uh, again, I'm I'm very blessed to be surround, be surrounded by both men and women who are really supportive of each other. Um, I, in 1988, you know, maybe not, but I think I was so, um, so 24 years old and uh, so myopic um, that I didn't even see it. I just saw opportunity. Now, I will tell you that when I joined in 88, there, were, there weren't a lot of women. It was actually the first year that I applied when I applied in 1987. Um, I know you, you weren't even born probably then. No. Yeah. How cute. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, but that was the first year they, they dropped the height restrictions. So I'm five, two and, wow. um, yeah, I wear very high heels, but, uh, I wear, I was like five, two. So I was the first opportunity that I would have had to, to apply. Now my sister is a police officer. Mm -hmm. She's an RCMP officer. She's a chief super in Nova Scotia. And so I did have sort of like this template right in front of me. So I was very blessed that way. But we hadn't, we didn't have policing in our family. So we were just sort of starting out. And um, so when I applied and I got hired, there wasn't a lot of women. And there certainly weren't a lot of women who looked like me being small. Yeah. I feel you on the height thing. I'm, I'm very short as well. So it's. Uh... Yeah, but it's perfect. <laughs> it's perfect packages, I say. That's right. So when I came on, um, within literally within days, I did some undercover work with a little bit of instruction, and you know they put me out. Um, I went out and I bought some at the time it was powdered powdered cocaine, um, literally on my third day, and so I was bitten by the bug, unfortunately, really early. <sighs> so badass. This is this is why I hear it. This is why how. Oh no! I was I was so scared. The bad guy thought I was jonesing. <laughs> Because <laughs> I was shaking so bad, so he was so he was happy to give me the drugs because he I I, I looked like I was you know jonesing. Yeah, I was like literally was. You're just was, like you're ready like. <laughs> that's right. So it worked well. It worked well. I mean, do they just throw you into an undercover? Like, how does that training for going in undercover or you know work? You know, what what is that like? Is it well, acting? Again, it changed so much in 
three decades, I can tell you, our undercover officers are incredibly well-trained and incredibly well-supported, um, even in the areas of wellness, which, of course, were words we didn't use back in 1988. Um, but it was, again, a way less violent environment back then as well. So um, it is, I mean, it is 32 years ago. It's a really long time. So, but back then, you know, I was very supported. I was always had a backup team who I, I knew was always within earshot or eyeshot, um, gave us lots of, uh, in the beginning, uh, what, what training was available, we got. Um, and again, uh, just too fun. Come on. I feel like in your other life, you were an actress because if you're going to do undercover work, you have to have that, you know, you can't break your cover, you know, especially if you're, you're trying to get in deep. Yeah, I to be quite frank, I in the beginning I was I was a, I was put undercover early, but I but I wasn't particularly good at it. Um, so hence the reason I just went into the other areas of investigation. If, if, uh, I, it was more about the lack of understanding of the criminal element because even though the police departments or police forces at the time were opening up to women and and embracing women in their ranks, certainly in the criminal element they were not. So they were blind to us being police officers, which was our undercover, which was our cover, Got because it. they had to turn their mind. And remember, a lot of those, yeah, and a lot of those places like drug dealing um, at the time, um, or any other sort of high criminal offenses, you know, women weren't high up in it, and so again, there was a barrier there. The very at the time, there was very few women who could really buy up or be high in undercover. I think that's changed. Yeah. Um, but that was because the, el- the criminal element was predominantly male. The, the fact that times have changed and everything, like how, how have you seen um, the growth now? Like, do you like the direction that it's grown in terms of not just female, but the wellness side of everything for, for all law enforcement in general, not just your detectives? Like, how is that since 88 to 2021 right now? How is that different? Incomparable. Mm-hmm. Um, just uh, we're so mindful of, of wellness. Now, cops themselves have always been pretty good at looking after each other. You know, that, that thin blue line, which is, you know, um, it's vilified these um, in the media these days. But in fact, the, the true meaning of it is that support system that has always been there. Um, Any time in homicide where I had a child death, within seconds, there was an email text saying, how are you? Um, yeah. You know, we, we've always been very good at taking care of each other because we had to. Of course. But, uh, but externally and sort of corporately, we've gotten so much better at it. We're really mindful. Most of my units uh, that that fall uh, in my command uh, see, they actually require to see a service psychologist at least once a year so that we can keep tabs on everybody because we recognize that that the work is hard and uh, and it's and it's hard on you um, whether you want to uh, admit it or whether you would like to see it or not. It's tough work. Um, and so over years, we really need to, we've turned, we've really gotten really good at it. Yeah. I, I mean, and I, 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 that's what I've heard, you know, as, as we've been doing the podcast as well. Um, I, I've also gone, gone to, to think about the detectives who are doing, you know, days on end sometimes work at a time. Um, is that super stressful or, or what's the, I would say, I know it's under obviously stressful within 40 hour, 48 hour work, but what's that motivation to keep going? Uh, we, we believe it's a, we believe it's a blessing. Well, you know, we, we really consider, you know, I'm sure uh, Hank spoke about the, the creed and that's no greater honor to, to a police officer. And it's true. There's no greater honor to than to investigate the death of another human being. 
And although we can't always stop the murder, we can sure make sure that once we are we are given carriage of that investigation, that it's done the very best way by the very best people. Yeah. And 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 that's it is really what all homicide investigators, not only just with Toronto Police, but across the country, um, really believe at their For heart. Sure. I mean, you give you give proper closure. I think that's the 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 big thing is that like I mean to what you can do depending on it, but I think it's the fact that any closure at all to to whatever extent is better than nothing, you know, and and I think that's what you're helping out with. I agree. Closure is kind of a manufactured television manufactured uh, thing. I don't think we, that that people ever get closure. I think that they get answers, mm-hmm. and answers allow people to move on, to move forward. And and I don't think that, um, especially since the vast majority of the homicides that the homicide unit does. Um, are are young people yeah so there are often more often than not parents who have to move forward without their children and and again i think it's the answers that assist that certainly not the closure it's it's the same thing with sexual assault victims which you know um some might argue are are as taxed if not more because they survive they're survivors and they themselves are um left to move on yeah uh, through and so giving closure for them um, looks different but again I think having answers allows people to to then put that in a box I mean I don't think they ever put the box down but they put the box put it in the box and they can move forward that's a great way of looking at it because it's so true the answers will push you in that direction um I think one of the the big things I asked Hank before I don't know if you're down to do it let's just see because Andy wouldn't do it Andy was hosting here I'll, I'm, oh. <laughs> I'm welcome to take this, but I asked, how would an interview that you would perform look like? And let's do a hypothetical situation. I am a perp. I am a suspect. Oh, you watch too much American television, so then, my friend. <laughs> what TV shows do you watch? Um, cop ones? Cop ones. I, uh, are you asking about, I love, I love um, British procedurals. Okay. I haven't watched that So one. British procedural uh, uh, policing is really good. It's fun for us because they talk the same language we do. We are based in the same law. Yeah. And so it makes sense to us. The American ones don't make any sense to me. Um, and, and everybody in the British one looks like a human. <laughs> yeah, like real, like what a real yeah. person would look like. They look like us, like hair masks, yeah. you know, mismatch, whatever is going on. The American ones are always, they're always so perfect. I assure you, we are not always perfect. How much of the American, I guess, cop shows are are over the top, you know, in terms of what you see from similarities? Like, what's what's what is something that you've seen that's so ridiculous that you're like that would never happen versus something that you've seen that's like okay, that would make sense. Well, Forty Eight Hours is good. Like, that's the one I would say is the is the best, is the closest relating to it, and they do a nice job of that. I mean, we have very different rules of law here in Canada. And our ideology as uh, police officers at the get-go are different. We consider ourselves guardians. They consider themselves warriors. Mm. I mean, it's much different our, the way we, the point from which we start. But um, then any of the CSI stuff is a lot of fun to watch, but is uh, is a little bit funny. We made a bet. You know, we made a bet. CSI was the one we all thought that you would say. <laughs> I, I just want to yell at them, turn on a damn light. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I've been saying that all the time. I was like, why is nobody turning on a light? 
It's yeah. so dark. And I don't call, I never called a corpse baby and I didn't, you know, the hair was not flowing. Like we're going into a crime scene. You're going to go into a crime scene properly attired. So yeah, all of that is, I mean, it's entertainment. It's a lot of fun. I'm, I'm grateful that, um, you know, that, that somebody has an interest. I always say that the, out of the top 10 television shows, seven at the time, not so much anymore, but seven at the time were about what we did and none of them had any reality in what we actually did. We would bore the pants off of people if you saw how much paperwork we had to do. People would be like, oh my God. And we would never recruit anyone. But I feel like, I mean, personally for me, I mean, obviously aside from TV shows, but I think from talking to you and Hank really opened my eyes because if, if there was anything I would get into in, in law enforcement, I would love to be a detective. I would love to be a detective. A lot of my friends would also want to as well. You know, so, so what are the things that we could look forward to, you know, if we were to to go in that role, like the fulfillment about it as well? You, you, you spoke briefly about it, but I want to know more of, you know, what are those things that if we're going to be giving our younger years, like in our, in our twenties to thirties, um, what, what, why would we do that? Well, as a police officer, I mean, first of all, you have to have a good basis in patrol. Like you really do sort of need to understand your city, our city. You have to have uh, sort of an organic appreciation of the multiculturalness of our city. You have to have an organic um, appreciation of, of, of what the sort of um, collective ideology of the city is, how we how we identify as a city, uh, what's important to us, and that's the only place you get that is out on the road, driving around in a scout car, you know, doing that. But when you get that under your belt and you're ready, there really is nothing better than being a puzzle maker, and that's what you get to be. You get given one piece of a puzzle. Sometimes it has no relationship to that puzzle that you're making, but you get to do it, and they pay you for it. And you get to take, you know, if you look at, at a, if you look at a sexual assault, or uh, uh, you know, you have a victim who has suffered probably one of the worst traumas that anybody could ever suffer, and you get to take the pieces of the puzzle that he or she gives you from her perspective uh, or his perspective, and then and then move forward each little step until you find that person. Same thing with a homicide; you find a deceased person that you in life, in all likelihood, never knew. And you get to follow, you get to follow the tiny pieces that you are given through your own hard work and that of your teams to arrest a person for murder. You get to catch killers for a living. There's nothing better. I'm sorry. There's nothing better than being a detective, of being, you know, really having people entrust in you this really their very worst day of their life. Entrusting you with the, with with their perspective of it, with their family, with it, it really is a blessing to be given that privilege of finding and working for that family, finding and working for that survivor, finding and working for you know the teller of a holdup who has gone to work that day. She's just gone in to do her regular shift, and before the end of it, she has been held at gunpoint for you know, and so. We get to, we can't make it, we can't always make it perfect, but we can make that situation better by doing our work ethically, properly, professionally. Like it's, it's just the coolest ever. And after 32 years, as you can see, I still love it. Like I still love it. It sounds so, so interesting and so fun. The fact that, 
you're right. It is a huge privilege because, you know, I'm putting, let's say I put myself in a victim's role. I look to you, you know, I would look to you, to, to the detectives. What else can we do? You know, maybe we don't understand. We don't have the skill sets. You know, we're not like Liam Neeson to go and take matters into our own hands and, and do our thing like that. No. We're, we're here to look at, you know, very, very professional and skillful people like yourselves who've been doing it for so long to catch these little things and, and, and help us in the worst time of our life. So I, I think that's such a huge honor that, that you do. And I think uh, more people should be at least striving to, to go towards that because there are unfortunately killers out there. And uh, I think the more help, how, how is the ranks right now? Is there, are you looking for more people to, to join up or how is it in COVID especially too, especially in COVID? Yeah, COVID is interesting because investigative work is very intimate work. Uh, it's a, uh, not unlike your work. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it, it works better when you're face-to-face, I'm sure. And for us, especially in your interviews, um, picking up on the energy in the room, picking up on slight body movements, picking up on the nuances of a person's story are so much better when you are face-to-face. Um, a lot of things, even with our victims or our victims' families, survivors' families, um, is we spend a lot of time sitting on their couch, talking to them, yeah. you know, being that support for them. And it's really, really hard for us when we don't have that available to us. It's, it's tough, but you know, my, the, the people who work for the, this command are incredible. They surprise me every day. Uh, they come to work, they're goofballs. Uh, they're, they're funny as heck. And, uh, and they really do just get it done. They really have not missed a beat. It took a couple seconds and they just said, cops do this really well, right? Cops do this really well. Like one day, okay, pandemic, all right, we got this. Yeah. And they just do it. Wow. It, it is fascinating. It's fascinating. But yeah, I'd like to, I find that there's a bit of a, um, a lull in young officers wanting to become investigators, not even, I say detectives, but detectives at all ranks. So detective, detective sergeant. Uh, you know all those and I'm and I I can't tell you that I know the reasons why it is not just a Toronto problem it is a global problem really Hmm. I teach I teach at a number of um, venues and often we ask at the end of the day or the end of the seminar who in because it's usually police officers I have the privilege of of, uh, talking to we ask who is having difficulty with bringing people into the ranks, yeah. and I will tell you, 100%. 100%. I've had people from Barbados, yeah. India, everywhere around the world on some of my courses, and they are all struggling with drawing people into that investigative work. And and I, there's probably, it's probably what we call a constellation of factors. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard work, and you're gone a long time. I'm sure Hank told you, you like, we... Yeah. We go out on a homicide and you may not come back for 48, 50 hours. Um, and you're gone a lot. And so I think that back in the day when, when they were the, the big city dicks in the sweeping coats and the fedoras, yeah. their spouses, their wives were at home. No, for sure. And so now we, uh, especially in Toronto, we attract, uh, we're blessed to attract, you know, all manner of people to be policing. And so we have, men and women, we have people who identify as uh, different genders, and we have different, um, you know, home situations. And so everybody's working. Yeah. So it's hard to, to be gone for two days. Of course, of um, course. And and the work is really, uh, you really have to have, I don't like to say you have to stomach for it, because that's a bit old school, mm-hmm. but you have to have the resilience for it. 
I think yeah. that's it. It's the resilience. And, and that's what I see a lot of you and Hank, you know, and at least the detectives that I've met is that there's this this underlying drive and the resilience to, you know, to 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 work that heavy for for um, a goal. And uh, I think the thing is, you know, it might be Hollywood's problem showing it off in this weird way or not showing the real hours or not showing also the gratitude that you get out of it. It's just more the action rather than what is the the end goal that you really feel and what you take from it, which is what you've described as something that's really, you know, indescribable. It, I agree. And we, I think we've also done a poor job ourselves in policing generally across the country at sort of um, telling our own story. Um, we, we are getting better at it as we're doing right now. Yeah. But before, you know, this was unheard of a decade ago mm-hmm. or 15 years ago at sort of telling our stories, showing our vulnerabilities, or more importantly, showing how proud we are of the work that we do and actually letting people in, being more transparent as to why we do what we do when we do it. And as a result, you know, transparency brings trust. And we are have, we have trust in the community now way more than we used to. And so um, certainly here in Toronto, I can tell you, it's not perfect. We work on it every day. Um, but trust in the community. And so they are coming forward um, with uh, their stories. And we are better trained. We're better trained in trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are trauma response trained. And we know how to do business with um, with our 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 survivors and our and our victims' families, and um, and I think we we were, we need to do again continue to do a better job at telling people our stories, our perspectives, and uh, demystify some of the work. I think that's it. It's demystifying everything, and I think that's why you know this podcast really exists too. Is that we're having just a conversation. We're just we're, we're hanging out. Me and Pauline, we're we're doing our thing, and, and we're we're just chatting because I I, I think. There's a lot of things in the world, right? There's this huge veil, right? The media hypes it up to be this thing or or what it might be or might not be. And then until you really get a conversation happening is when, you know, the real trust can happen because we hear, like you said, the vulnerabilities, you know, what are the lows? What are the highs? And it's something that we can all relate to because nobody has a perfect life. Everybody has lows. And I think that's where we're going to relate to because long hours, you've seen so many things. I mean, you specialize operations, homicide, sex crimes, hold up forensic identification, everything from what I've seen. You also work with one of the hottest things that I'm, I'm hearing right now, which is sex trafficking uh, or human trafficking. And I know sex trafficking is a, is a category of that, but I, I would love to move into that and, and talk about, you know, how is that, um, how are those numbers progressing in this COVID environment? Um, well, the, the COVID environment has slowed us down a little bit, which in our business is a good thing. Yes. Um, you know, we're the only business that's trying to put themselves out of business. Um, and it has slowed down, but it hasn't slowed down as much as one would think. Um, because it's not something that happens um, in, in the light of day. It is always covert. Um, and so uh, COVID is uh, but a minor bump for them. And, but they continue. Uh, the, the traffickers uh, continue to to do their trade, and quite frankly, uh, demand doesn't stop either. Either, which is something we rarely talk about. We talk a lot about the traffickers, and we talk a lot about the generally speaking women who are trafficked, who are who are uh, victims of this. Mm-hmm. But we rarely talk about demand, about the people who are purchasing. Yes. Uh, purchasing these, quite frankly, young girls, or. For sex, mm-hmm. full stop. Yeah, and and doing it purposely, purposely looking for young women, 
and I mean young, we're not talking about, when they say underage women, it is a misnomer. There is no such thing. If you are underage, you are a girl. Mm-hmm. You are a little girl. Mm-hmm. And so women are women. Women are grown. They're over 18 or, you know, that's what we're talking about. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about school age children oh my God. being trafficked yeah. to prominently men looking for their sexual services. I think it makes people uncomfortable. I think it makes people shift in their seats. You're shifting I'm shifting. Their seats. Of course. Of course. Yeah. yeah. It's an uncomfortable topic. And so we don't talk about it because demand, quite frankly, looks like the fellow who's sitting on the bus beside you. That you never know. Like yeah. You never know. Just don't know. Mm-hmm. You just don't know. So we spend a lot of time talking about how to identify the traffickers. We spend a lot of time talking about how to, how to identify, uh, children, generally speaking, who are at risk of being yeah. trafficked. Um, but we don't spend any time talking about what what um, uh, demand looks like, and specifically if you are a person who is using the sexual services of a child, um, you you think that we're, we don't see you, but we do. We do see you. What are the, the, the things that you've seen that um, some victims will have to do in order to, I guess, get past the situation? And I say that very loosely. Yes, getting past it is... Uh, um, we, because human trafficking comes with other, um, when, if and when we're able to uh, rescue mm-hmm. somebody from sex trafficking, human trafficking, um, they often come out of it with addiction, um, certainly mental health challenges. So just like an addict would have to um, become clean, just like somebody who had mental health challenges would have to work to be whole or be well, I mean, that survivor has to do them all at the same time. They have, they have, again, they have this huge um, amount of, of uh, baggage that they leave that uh, relationship with or they leave that lifestyle with. And it's very hard, um, psychologically, very, very hard to, um, to come out and not go back again. Often like addiction relapses. Yeah. Um, so it's tough. It's very, very tough. And, and I don't think that people recognize the prevalence of it. Um, uh, last year alone, we had... 225, uh, sorry, since the um, HT office that falls under sex crimes here began in 2014, they have had 225 victims that they have rescued where they have laid charges. And these are not people that, again, uh, media portrays it as this, you know, international, um, and you see the wire, they come in a crate. And that's not what the tr- reality. The reality is it's your, it's the girl next door. Yeah. It's your daughter. It's your niece. It's, that's who they are. And, um, and these predators move amongst us. Um, and, and unless we turn our minds to, uh, to, do, to those young women in our life, I say young women, there are some young men, but the generally it's young women. Mm-hmm. Um, if we don't turn our minds to um, assisting them to not head into that, that life, then, then um, uh, we are going to be in a lot of trouble. I think personally, I think that's part of, you know, the problem is I think there needs to be more media around that. It, you're right. It's people are super uncomfortable with hearing these things because they don't want to hear it. You know, nobody wants to hear things like this. Um, you know, where's the possibility of their younger child that, you know, is very, very underage, you know, uh, your little girl, uh, be in these situations, but unfortunately it's a reality. There was a, um, a Netflix show. There was a Netflix show that was on and, um, it was a huge controversy about it. I think it was with young girls, you know, portraying themselves and being in those situations. And it got a lot of, lot of feedback where, you know, 
people are going to un- un- unsubscribe from my Netflix account because they're underage. But, you know, I was speaking, you know, with my girlfriend, we're saying, unfortunately, this is the reality. This is just reality. And people aren't ready for that because they're in their little bubble of, you know, whatever it may be. If it's like nice town suburbia where they don't see that these things exist, you know, even in the nice town suburbia that they don't even know about. So I really think we're all programmed by, you know, what we see, what the media tells us. But when there's the lack of things like what you're speaking about, if we don't see them or hear about it, then it's hard for us to even catch um, I guess those instances. And that leads me into my next question, which is for, for our, um, you know, our ladies, uh, generally the ladies, but also our males too, who are possibly in these situations, what can we look out for, um, that can keep us, I guess, or what are those tips and tricks to keep us safe from being trafficked? Well, I think a lot of it falls to, uh, parents, caregivers, aunts, uncles, sisters, brothers to just, um, look, keep your eyes open. Um, I think the best way to, to keep a young person from falling into human trafficking is to inoculate them against it. And that, and by, and doing that is, a, you know, a young lady who is self-confident, who is uh, surrounded by people that she has communication with. Communication with them is key. Um, so that you are the first person they come to if something is amiss. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not on the, uh, like um, people getting brought into gangs. You know, if they're looking for somewhere to belong, if they don't feel like they belong somewhere, these these guys are predators, right? They're predatorial. They can sense when somebody is feeling badly about themselves or feeling badly about their situation, and they will strike. Uh, they usually portray themselves as, uh, you know, as a new boyfriend or as a new suitor. And, um, you know, it's very intoxicating to a young girl to have, generally speaking, an older person um, think that they're beautiful and think that they're smart and funny and that their art is fabulous or their dance mm-hmm. is fabulous because at that age they feel like all of us did um awkward and and not like we belong anywhere and we don't think anybody understands us um and if we don't have someone to talk to in our immediate circle they'll these these predators these traffickers will sense that and they will be they will fill in where that that gap is yeah and uh, it is very, sometimes they're very patient. They're very patient. They can, they will wait two weeks, two months, um, but they will eventually bring uh, that young lady over. And uh, before you know it, uh, they're no longer the girlfriend. They are, they are working for them. And um, they may uh, make it sound rather romantic and edgy in the beginning, but it is nothing of the sort. Uh, so as as people who are who have young ladies in our family or of our circle, um, I would say social media. Keep an eye on their social media. As as much as a thirteen year old does not want you looking at um, what she's looking at, um, it's it's our job. Mm-hmm. It really is our job. And so uh, things that people wouldn't dream of, um, like uh, seeing if their if their Wi Fi has been um, feeding off the of hotels. Wow. If you're if you're a fourteen year old is if you see the Wi-Fi connections are with local hotels, I mean, that's, there may be, if she works in catering, that's fine. But if she doesn't, then there's a, then there is certainly a question to be asked. And, and it's our, and it's our duty, it's our, it's our duty to keep them safe. And by keeping them safe, we have to ask those hard questions. And you talked about uncomfortable. I think a lot of that is that, is that these are hard questions. Um, look at the Google uh, history of, of them. Are they searching terms that, that they that they didn't understand about STDs, 
about um, about infections, about sexual practices that, generally speaking, 13 and 14-year-olds wouldn't have the terminology for. And so they're searching because they too are, um, are they're, they're, they're being taught something and, and they're learning. So you, that, these are all things. Who are they talking to? Well, you know, we, we laugh, but my parents, and I suspect yours as well, needed to know who your friends were. All of them. <laughs> all, all of them. them. All of them. Yeah, and, if you, and if you were an immigrant like myself, their parents. Yeah. You had to know who the parents were. And then my dad would say, and what do they do for a living? Oh, yeah, yeah. What's, right? Yeah, so, what's their place look like? Everything, where are they from? Yeah, all that. Mm-hmm. And we don't need to do it that far where that's mm-hmm. seriously old school. Very. But there is something to be said. If, you're, if your child does not know your, their new friend by anything more than a nickname, uh, that is a red flag. Mm-hmm. It's a red flag. And, um, you know, there's some old school stuff that does work. Any of your new friends, I have to meet first. Yeah. I need to know them. I need to know them because I will guarantee you they won't come. They won't come. So, and 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 just as a uh, as a caveat, they're not always men traffickers, right? We again that social that media driven idea that the trafficker is you know this man, and we it, it's not true. Often the recruiters are women. Yeah. And women, and again, um, you know, a young fifteen year old girl who feels quite lonely is more likely to uh, go and especially this new 21 year old or 18 year old girl who seems really hip, seems really cool. has got the best of the best. It's intoxicating. Of course. It's intoxicating. And so we really have to do a good job at sort of being that other side. And again, I can't say it enough. Communication is key. Uh, talk about uh, sex again for a whole generation is still hard. You have to have those conversations with your kids early and often so that they're comfortable in coming to you right away. And, uh, and that is, that's the inoculation to keep them out of that light. Absolutely. Those are amazing tips. And I, I hope, you know, everybody out there, um, especially our parents and, and guardians that are out there, please, please do listen to these. And unfortunately, please ask these hard questions because, um, I think we'd all rather ask a hard question than rather go through a hard situation, you know, after. So um, thank you so much, Pauline. I think uh, I want to leave you on one last note uh, before you go. Please give a shout out to um, any future detectives out there that do want to be it. You know, what, what can they do? How do they how do they get to, um, you know, how can they get to that position? What are the steps moving forward? And then, um, yeah. Well, I can say show an interest. They, at your division, wherever you work, or whatever, even if it's even if it's not for my service, I'll just do a general PSA for for because every detective sergeant and superintendent out there who works in the criminal investigations field is desperate. So understand, show an interest early and often. Own your own career. Don't wait for your service to give you what you need. Go get it. Read. Read. I read every book on homicide I could get my hands on. Read. Ask questions. Be a bug. Be a bug. And put your hand up, put your hand up and understand that, yes, it's hard. But like you just said, you get to pick your heart, right? Pick your heart. This is hard work, but nothing, nothing on the planet in policing is more rewarding than being able to be that person that a family can look to at their worst day of their lives uh, and maybe be able to give them those answers that we talked about earlier. Amazing. You heard it first from the most badass Detective Toronto Police Service, Pauline Gray, thank you so much for uh, being here, being with us. And um, 24 Shades of Blue, out.